on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. Wilkerson was the guy who conceived the Flamingo. He later was pushed out of it by Siegel, even though Wilkerson was there on opening night. But that's also not depicted. I think there's a great movie to be made someday about this whole Wilkerson Siegel uh, battle, because that's, in my mind, actually more interesting than what they ended up doing. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city, it's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 132 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Las Vegas-based comedian and musician, Dennis Blair. Dennis joined me on the podcast and shared stories from his time working with the likes of Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, and George Carlin, who he spent 18 years working with. We discussed what got him into comedy initially, and we talked about his book, Touring with Legends. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 131, my special guest, Dennis Blair, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. It's been over 30 years since Warren Beatty jumped onto movie screens around the world as one of the most feared and best-known mobsters of all time, Bugsy. The film, directed by Barry Levinson and co-starring Annette Bening, tells the story of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel and his role in the creation of the Flamingo Hotel and the building of Las Vegas as an oasis in the desert. Bugsy was considered to be a minor hit, having grossed just over $49 million at the box office, and it was generally well-received by critics. The film also garnered 10 Oscar nominations, including nods for Best Picture and Best Director, and seven Golden Globe nominations, where it scored a win for Best Motion Picture Drama. But despite all these accolades, just how historically accurate was the movie? My guest for this episode of the podcast is here to tell us. Making his fourth appearance on the show is Jeff Schumacher, the vice president of exhibits and programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Jeff was kind enough to once again join me on the show to help separate fact from fiction when it comes to the story of Bugsy Siegel. Did Bugsy try to break into acting during his time in Hollywood? Who actually came up with the idea for the Flamingo? And was opening night for the Flamingo really a total flop? We get the answers to these questions and many more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Schumacher. So the last time we were on uh, chatting together, we were talking about a a very famous Vegas-related movie. We were talking about the movie Casino and uh, having a conversation about how um, historically accurate uh, that film was. And for the most part, you know, with the exception of a, a few little bits of of drama it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty bang on for the most part absolutely you know it's a movie where 
I think the filmmakers really made a point of wanting to try within the within the restraints of the time they had to to be accurate. And now you're back to chat about another Vegas-related movie, uh, the 1991 classic Bugsy, starring Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. Um, maybe not quite so historically accurate this time around. This is quite a contrast with Casino, even though there are bits and pieces of the movie that are that are, that are accurate. Uh, there's definitely a lot of dramatic license here. And similar to the movie Casino, Bugsy is based on a book, We Only Kill Each Other, The Life and Bad Times of Bugsy Siegel by Dean Jennings. It is. You know, there's only been a, a few uh, uh, decent biographies written of uh, Bugsy Siegel. And, uh, but even the fact that it's based on that book doesn't mean they followed the book <laughs> all the time either. When you've been on the podcast before, Jeff, we've talked about how the mob didn't keep records and dead men don't tell tales and that kind of stuff. I assume, though, the book stuck pretty close to the facts as they pertain to uh, Bugsy's life. It did. It did. It was definitely a nonfiction book. It was a work of, I think, you know, really high level journalism. Uh, he, uh, the author was able to speak with people who knew Bugsy, who knew people who were involved in that whole time. So it was, you know, it was, uh, it was published, uh, you know, several decades ago. And, um, you know, it's a decent book. I think what we found since then, uh, is we've learned a few things more about, uh, uh, Siegel's time in Las Vegas and about the building of the Flamingo Hotel that are a little bit different than what you see in that book. All right, let's get to it. Let's let's dive right into the film. We're going to start off at the beginning, which is always a good place to begin. Um, in the movie, uh, it begins with Bugsy making this jump to Los Angeles, where he's going to take over uh, another mobster's uh, gambling operations. That's kind of the plan for him to to go there. And in the film, he's portrayed as being uh, quite heavily involved. Not heavily involved in the entertainment industry per se, but he's got a lot of friends and colleagues in the entertainment industry. Yeah, so this is one of the areas of the movie that's, I think, fairly accurate. Uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel, when he came to uh, Los Angeles, uh, a friend of his he got in touch with, an old friend of his, was George Raft. Raft had uh, was a successful actor, uh, kind of a heartthrob at the time, and uh, and he knew... Uh, Siegel from back in the day in New York when Raft had been kind of a hanger on with some of these uh, these mob guys, young mob guys. And, uh, and and so they knew each other and they were friends. And I think they became even better friends once uh, Siegel moved out to L.A. So I, it was Raft who became the, the conduit through which Siegel became uh, familiar with the Hollywood scene. Uh, and he would go to Ciro's and other restaurants and nightclubs, and he got to know a lot of people in the uh, movie business. And uh, there was, you know, there's a suggestion in the movie that Siegel uh, considered maybe he, you know, he had movie star looks, maybe he could become an actor in a movie. Um, but I think the movie does the right thing, which is it pulls its punches on that a little bit and says, you know, yeah, passing fancy, you know, uh, that uh, Siegel considered it, but, but. He didn't have time, really, for that kind of nonsense. He he had a lot of work to do. He's portrayed almost as a little bit of a, a narcissist in the film in that, you know, they show him he's he's done this screen test and he spends time sitting in his living room watching his own screen tests and things like that. Was there was there any evidence of of that actually being part of his his 
personality at all? You know, I don't know about the uh, the watching him his screen test in, in his in his house. I I can't speak to that, but I I will say that you know Siegel at this point in his life, I think, was seeking transcendence in his career. Right? He was he had been a, a, a mob tough guy. Right? He killed people. He had been the enforcer for Meyer Lansky going back to you know the twenties and and early thirties. I mean, he was involved. In in some ways with Murder, Inc., uh, you know, the hit squad in New York. So, but Siegel, you know, uh, in his middle age, like a lot of us are like, okay, what do I want to do when I grow up? And uh, maybe I need to become more sophisticated, right? So I need to speak more clearly. So you see uh, Warren Beatty as the Siegel character practicing these sort of lines that help you to enunciate words better. And you see him dressing very you know, very snazzy dresser. And uh, I think he was trying sort of the self-improvement kind of move that, you know, that that became much more popular later uh, where everybody thinks that they, they can improve themselves and improve their lives. And, and this manifested later with his, you know, trying to go legit, so to speak, in Las Vegas. And of course, it was during this time when he was in Los Angeles that he started dating Virginia Hill, who would go on to become his his longtime girlfriend. Um, my understanding from the research and the reading that I've done, Virginia Hill's role in the world of of Hollywood was a little bit pumped up for this film. She she wasn't as major of a player as as they made her out to be. That is correct. I mean, she was. They they depict uh, uh, Siegel going on to the set of a movie being made, and uh, it's based on a real a real real movie that was being made, George Raft movie, and uh, and Virginia Hill has a role in this movie, not a big role. Uh, so they're accurate in that way. She was Virginia Hill was in that movie. Uh, but it, it, she definitely wasn't dressed up as glamorous with as much glamour as Annette Benning was. Uh, and, and she really wasn't, you know, as, as, uh, much of a bombshell as Annette Benning was in that movie. You know, she was very pretty and, you know, attractive, but, but not probably going to make it in the movie business at that time because she wasn't quite at that level. You know, she she just wasn't uh, going to compete with the biggest stars in Hollywood. And um, so I think they do overstate that a little bit. And I'm assuming then Bugsy probably dated other Hollywood starlets as well. He did. Uh, he had a number of relationships when he was there and uh, not the, the the most famous actresses. Uh, all, that was kind of the province of people like George Raft and, and Howard Hughes, frankly, who dated almost every major star of that era. Uh, but but Bugsy uh, did date uh, actresses and uh, and other celeb, you know, uh, people in that circuit in L.A. If I'm not mistaken, didn't an actress end up being the godmother to one of Bugsy's daughters? It was uh, Jean Harlow, right? Uh, I believe, and uh, they became friends, and uh, and Jean was a great, uh, great. Uh, uh, she would come over and visit, and and the kids got to know her, and and yeah, so she she developed a friendship. So fact wise, um, Bugsy's time in L.A. in the movie was portrayed relatively realistically then. I think so. You know, uh, uh, Bugsy, uh, you never call him Bugsy. That was a big refrain <laughs> in the movie. But Ben Siegel uh, was uh, definitely a player in that, not only in the mob side of things, but in the Hollywood side. And what what really happened was 
these Hollywood types wanted they, there was some strange attraction to Siegel because he had this reputation as being uh, this mob, this mob tough guy, and he had a national reputation. And so, you know, how cool would it be to have Ben Siegel at your at your party? How cool would it be to be seen with him somewhere? It's sort of you know strange in a way but we people do that to this day right you 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 want to take a picture with i don't but some people want to take a picture with oj simpson you know it's like well i don't think that's such a great idea but you know people are attracted to these sort of dangerous uh the perceived dangers of uh people like bugsy siegel so uh he was definitely part of that scene um uh for a period of time and then, you know, the infiltration of, of the uh, organized crime in Southern California, though, was his main focus. And although there was organized crime on the West Coast and in California at that time, by the time he got there, it, it wasn't really as big as it was on the East Coast, was it? Uh, and there's some dispute about this, right? Uh, but but Jack Dragna was the head of the the mafia in uh, Southern California, really in Los Angeles and and a little bit beyond that. Uh, it was a a smaller operation, certainly than the the mafia families in New York or in Chicago. Uh, but they were they they were bigger in money. They were involved in a lot of different rackets. And um, uh, I just, you know, it's important to understand that a lot of people will will uh, use that phrase, the Mickey Mouse Mafia, to describe the Los Angeles Mafia. Uh, but that phrase is not is not should not be tied to the Jack Dragna era because Dragna had a much it was not Mickey Mouse in that sense. It was pretty serious minded and and uh it was it was bigger than that's perceived. The Mickey Mouse Mafia reference came later after Dragna passed away and the Los Angeles Mafia did be quite become quite uh small and, and insignificant. Uh, and kind of, you know, dunderheaded, really. They just weren't doing the right things from a crime standpoint. Uh, but so you had, you had Jack Dragna and then you had Mickey Cohen and Mickey Cohen uh, is described in the movie somewhat accurately as sort of a one man mob. He, uh, was the head of a, a crew of, of guys who committed crimes and, you know, Hollywood over the years, and not just Hollywood, but the press in general, have have tried to turn Mickey Cohen into some kind of real big shot in Southern California, and he played to it. Man, he loved all the the press attention and all that. Um, but the reality was, he was a relatively uh, minor character until uh, he teamed up with Siegel, and then uh, he he definitely became a higher profile figure. One of the more bizarre sort of odd storylines that's kind of a sub story of these L.A. years is Bugsy Siegel having this weird obsession with Mussolini. Yeah. And he maintains this relationship with a, a countess, uh, Countess DeFrasso in the movie. Her and her husband are, are friends with Benito Mussolini and Bugsy hatches this plan that he's going to go to Italy with the, the count and countess and he's going to he's going to get close to Mussolini and he's going to assassinate Mussolini. Did he really have any kind of these um, aspirations to to want to assassinate Mussolini? 
You know, the, the it might be a little bit of a surprise to uh, your listeners, but I think he did. Yeah, I I absolutely believe that. Uh, you know, Siegel was very conscious of what was going on in Europe at the time, and why wouldn't he be? He was a Jewish man who was seeing that there were news reports about mass slaughter of Jewish people uh, in Europe by Hitler, and and uh, and and it was just you know I, I can only imagine that he he thought he had an opportunity or some pathway to get to to Mussolini to kill him that he do it you know me uh, in mind I mean Siegel's background was you know hurting and killing people that was what he did for a living for quite a while so you know and and getting away with it and so you know it may have been a little a little bit uh far-fetched that he could you know go to Italy kill Mussolini come back you know and go to Ciro's again and have a have a drink but <laughs> this was on his mind and and he did take a trip uh, uh, to try to do that. It didn't work out, but, uh, you know, I, I believe he thought he might be able to pull that off. There was one story that I read that I thought was just absolutely bizarre. Did you ever hear anything about Bugsy trying to sell weapons to Mussolini and the Nazis early on in the war? You know, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, I, I do think that he wanted to be involved in one way or another with the war effort. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to find a way in. Uh, I, I would, uh, uh, definitely consider, you know, Siegel to have been, uh, on the, on the Allied side. I mean, he was a, he was an American and he was uh, determined to defeat the Nazis, defeat, uh, uh, Mussolini and the fascists there. And, um, uh, he probably would have done all kinds of things if he had the opportunity uh, to help. And just as Meyer Lansky, you know, wanted to do that. It's very weird to take a step back and think of these guys who are running this massive criminal syndicate of gambling and prostitution and, and murder for hire and look at them as good old American patriots who just want to do whatever they can to help win the war effort. It's such a bizarre thing to wrap your head around. I, I agree. And uh, what, what, what I like about it uh, from a historian standpoint is this is a, those, this is one of those situations where, where the, the, the shadow history of the mob in America intersects with mainstream history, you know? So you've got uh, lucky Luciano is uh, in prison in upstate New York, uh, for the prostitution, uh, syndicate that he had in New York, uh, rotten away there. But then the war comes and we need to protect the docks in New York and New Jersey from potential German attacks. So the government goes to Lucky Luciano through Meyer Lansky and says, can you help us? And because of course, the mob controlled the docks in New York and New Jersey. So who better to help the Navy to prevent any kind of problem? And Lucky's like, yeah, yeah, I can help you because in part, he's a loyal American. You know, he wants to win the war, even if he's in prison riding away. Um, but he hopes maybe there's something in it for him. Well, so in fact, the docks are protected and there is a fair amount of evidence that the mob had a big role in making sure that happened. Um, and at the end of the war, uh, Luciano is awarded uh, by being released from prison. The only downside is he had to be, uh, he had to leave the country. So he moved to Italy for the rest of his life. Um, 
But still, he was free. He was a free man. And that happened because he helped with the war effort. One more twist about that. The prosecutor who put Lucky Luciano in prison was Thomas Dewey. After, because of the the high profile that Thomas Dewey attained by being the prosecutor of the biggest mobster in the country, he became the governor of New York. And he was the person who who let Luciano out of prison after the war. Uh, he was He showed that sort of duality of saying, I'm going to put you in prison, but you do something good, we're going to let you out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, pretty, pretty fascinating. Of course, the big part of this movie, the the major portion of the plot surrounds the um, conception and the construction and the opening of the Flamingo, this oasis in the desert. And in the film, Bugsy makes his first trip to Las Vegas. He goes there along with Mickey Cohn and Virginia Hill to investigate a, a, a gambling hall. And in this particular part of the movie, uh, this, the city of Las Vegas, where they go to this gambling hall is portrayed as this dusty, dirty, almost like an old West town. I mean, for God's sakes, there's a, there's a horse tied up outside of the the gambling hall that they go to. Um, by the time Bugsy made his first visit to Las Vegas in real life, the town, the city, if you will, was already quite built up and bustling, wasn't it? Absolutely. This is one of the, for me, one of the low points of the film is this initial depiction of Las Vegas as being sort of this two-bit kind of rural uh, uh, place where the casinos are just this, everybody's asleep pretty much at the tables or at the bar and nothing's going on. Uh, In fact, uh, at that time, in 1941, you had the opening of the El Rancho Vegas Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. Not a mob place. It was a mainstream uh, developer. Uh, and this was the first major resort outside of Fremont Street, the downtown area. And uh, this was the model that later became the Flamingo in the sense that this was a sprawling suburban style resort, all kinds of different activities, good, nice restaurants, showroom, good gambling, you know, take a horseback ride if you want. And then a year later, you had the opening of the last frontier just down the road and the last frontier took that to the next level with almost a thematic old west kind of theme but some very high profile entertainment uh you know uh, good good restaurants that kind of thing and besides that you had the all of the bustle of fremont street there was a ton of casinos on, on fremont street that were doing a lot of business and if they had depicted they could have done that better uh, in my mind, but obviously there's, they have a limited amount of time to show, okay, here's Bugsy's vision versus what's already here. And they wanted to show a big contrast. Um, what really happened, um, was quite different. Which leads us into the Flamingo itself and how the imagining of the Flamingo is, is portrayed in the movie is, is in my mind, it is pretty amazing i mean bugsy mickey virginia they're driving back to los angeles after this whole investigating the gambling hall in dusty dirty las vegas they pull over to the 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 side of the road in the desert mickey thinks bugsy's off looking for somewhere to to take a leak um and as he's wandering through the desert he has this amazing epiphany this this vision of this 
gambling oasis in the desert, this place that's going to draw everybody in and and he goes back to the east coast and and he convinces his his mob associates to invest in this project and and he's going to name it after virginia hill he convinces her to be involved too he's going to name it after her he's going to call it the flamingo none of this happened none of that happened um you are correct i will note though a couple of great lines from that than that set of scenes you know there was virginia hill uh when they were uh they got to that little crappy uh, uh casino she said we drove five and a half hours for this canker sore that was a pretty good line uh and then siegel uh once he uh is back from his vision in the desert he said i am talking about the single best idea i've ever had which i think has kind of a double thought it, it elicits two thoughts which is one oh he's got a great idea or when did he ever have a, an idea like did he ever have any good <laughs> ideas before this i mean i'm not sure he did um but the reality is that the the flamingo hotel was conceived by a man named billy wilkerson billy wilkerson was there's a connection he knew siegel from la uh, uh billy wilkerson was the uh, owner of Ciro's, uh, the place where it was depicted in the show, uh, in the movie. Uh, but also he was the owner and editor of the Hollywood Reporter newspaper. And this was a very influential uh, uh, publication uh, in Hollywood at the time. So Billy Wilkerson had a lot of money, had a lot of influence. He also loved to gamble. So he was spending a lot of time in Las Vegas gambling. And um and he conceived the idea of building a casino in Las Vegas that would mirror the elegance and the sophistication of the places that he spent time in in Los Angeles, as well as Paris and other places. And he thought, I could bring all my Hollywood friends to, to Las Vegas if we had a place like this. So in 1945, uh, Wilkerson buys uh a piece of property out on what was then called Highway 91. And and this is where he's going to build a casino that he's going to call the Flamingo or the Flamingo Club in his mind. And uh, we have that, the, that actual check, the down payment check that he made, uh, that he paid for that property. We have that on display in the Mob Museum now. Um, so Wilkerson starts building uh, the Flamingo. And he runs into some problems. Uh, the biggest problem he faces is a lack of money. And he had gotten a loan from actually a, 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 an investment from Howard Hughes to build. He was working on bank loans and things like that. But because Wilkerson was such an avid gambler and a very bad one at that, he was losing lots of money uh, at the same time. So he, he kind of had a a compulsive gambling problem and some money that could have been invested in the flamingo was <laughs> instead being put into the cages at the uh at the other casinos in town so see wilkerson needed investors and he uh ultimately turned to meyer lansky and meyer lansky's crew of people both in new york and here in las vegas and uh Bugsy Siegel was among those investors. And Lansky says, you know, we're going to invest this money with you, but we're going to need somebody in Las Vegas to kind of keep an eye on our investment, work alongside you, 
you know, see how things are going. We trust you, Billy, but hey, we're going to be there and be involved in it. And ultimately, it's Bugsy Siegel who starts spending time there. And he's standing next to, to Wilkerson on the construction site, you know, conferring, have different ideas about things. And it starts out fairly well. But eventually, Siegel takes such a liking to this project that he wants it for his own. And this, I think, goes back to this thing we were talking about earlier about the self-improvement, this idea that Siegel wants to transcend his mob past and become like a respected businessman. Um, the movie, I think, accurately, <laughs> and, and Meyer, Meyer Lansky, the Meyer Lansky character mentions that, that Bugsy's bad with money. You know, he doesn't respect money. And, and you can see that in the, when he takes over the flamingo from Billy Wilkerson, he just starts spending money like crazy and he has to get this money somewhere. So he starts, you know, getting, asking for more and more money from the, his mob friends. And so Wilkerson was the guy who conceived the flamingo. He later was pushed out of it by Siegel. Um, even though uh, he, you know, Wilkerson was there on opening night, uh, but that's also not depicted. I think there's a great movie to be made someday about this whole Wilkerson Siegel uh, battle because that's, the, in my mind, actually more interesting than what they ended up doing. Coming up, we discuss the circumstances surrounding the still unsolved murder of Bugsy Siegel and how it was presented in the movie. And just how involved in the design and construction of the Flamingo was Virginia Hill. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. In the movie, Virginia Hill is depicted as being uh, quite heavily involved in the construction of the Flamingo. She's there on site. She's at meetings. She's helping with designs and she's helping with plans. She's wandering around the construction site in her high heels looking fantastic. Um, is there any evidence to show that she was um, heavily involved in the building of the Flamingo? I think there is a degree of truth to that. I, I think that Siegel uh, trusted her eye in many ways and that he kind of seeded some of the definitely the interior design uh, stuff to her. I'm not saying that she was the final decider on these things, but she definitely had a role in those early months when they were building the, the Flamingo. I think they might overdo it a little bit in the in the movie, but she definitely had a role. And I think he... You know, there was this, a lot of this was really foreign to Siegel, right? I mean, he doesn't know how to design anything, really. Um, and so he, he had a vision. He had this, you know, even though it was Wilkerson's original idea, Siegel did have a vision of what he wanted the Flamingo to be. Uh, but it was a very big vision. It had nothing to do with, you know, what kind of linens are we going to have in the, in the dining room? You know, that he, he did allow Virginia to be involved in a lot of that. His big vision, from what I recall from the film, was uh, air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, he he said in the film, uh, quote, I have found the answer to the dreams of America. And while uh, uh, he that's the big picture, like it is there's some truth to that. Right. I mean, what what happened is Las Vegas became Las Vegas after the opening of the Flamingo, where you started seeing millions of people coming here. And 
two things happened over the course of the decades. Uh, people became more comfortable with Las Vegas and the rest of the country became more like Las Vegas, right? And I was gambling in every state almost and, and there's casinos all over the place because everybody wants to do what we've been doing, what we were doing. And so Siegel uh, did see something there. Uh, but the way he described it in the movie was the real hook was air conditioning. And, and it wasn't wrong. It wasn't completely wrong there. Although air conditioning had arrived in Las Vegas quite a few years before uh, Siegel arrived. A constant 71 degrees in every room all the time. (laughs) And, you know, that's that's what we all strive for here. (laughs) Uh, um, We talked a little bit about how terrible Bugsy was with money and how over budget he went. And it is depicted in the film where I I guess the the biggest example of that is the pool. When he's staring (laughs) at this wall, he's like, well, I can't see the pool. Where's the pool? It's behind the wall. Well, we can't have this wall here. Well, it's holding up the ceiling. Well, we got to fix that. He, He really didn't, as you say, he didn't have any kind of concept of either A, design or B, money. Like he just didn't care. So I, I have two thoughts about that. One is just true. He didn't care about th- how much money it costs, but I, he wasn't wrong about the pool, right? Am I right? right. Uh, but he probably should have noticed that earlier. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key, right? Uh, and and uh, he didn't want to settle. And when you talk about not settling, that became kind of a mantra in Las Vegas among the most what later became the most famous entrepreneurs here and probably the best example of a bugsy like character in that way was steve Wynn. and when steve Wynn built the mirage when he built the bellagio when he built the win he insisted on certain things he again was not an expert on you know all all of the details but he knew what he wanted and if things weren't the way he wanted them, he wanted them fixed and there's very much of a seagull like feeling to the way Wynn worked at the time so yeah, I, I think about that as someone who, who uh, manages people and manages projects at the Mob Museum. There's sometimes when I probably drive people crazy because I'll say, yeah, we've been doing it this way for a while, but let's change it. Like, we need to change this. We need to fix this. And, uh, you know, their, their first reaction is, oh, you just, you know, it costs money or, you know, it costs time. But, you know, you want things to be right. <laughs> How far over budget did the Flamingo go? I mean, it seems like the way it's portrayed in the film and from what I've kind of read about the um, the construction and the design and such is it kind of felt like there wasn't really a budget per se. It was just it was Bugsy constantly figuring out ways to get more money to pay for stuff. When Billy Wilkerson uh, started working on the Flamingo, I believe he had a budget, a real budget, of uh, $1.2 million. This is what Wilkerson believed it would take to build a nice resort uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, Siegel ended up spending in excess of $6 million on the Flamingo, which was an unprecedented number. But, you know, he was bringing it. There were two things working there was one thing that was his fault and one thing that wasn't his fault. The thing that was his fault is he insisted on sometimes on materials that were completely unrealistically expensive, like Italian marble and things like that, that he wanted to have in to, to ship these things from overseas, you know, to Las Vegas. That was not a, uh, uh, an easy thing to do. But the second part was they also had to buy a lot of materials through the black market because at the time after World War II, the construction industry was was required by the federal government to focus on housing for 
XGIs. They were supposed to use the building materials for certain things. And building a casino was not real high on the government's list. So he was um, actually challenged by the War Production Board about like how, you know, are you doing, is this, is, are you doing this correctly? And there's some question about, uh, whether some payoffs were made to to smooth things over, but uh, but definitely Siegel was buying uh, materials at much higher rates than he should have been or needed to. Uh, There's also a lot of allegations of that the, a lot of the materials were stolen off the construction site, and I think there's some some validity to that. So he was he because in part because he wasn't a great businessman, you know he. He could have been more cognizant of those things and prevented those things from happening, but I think there was some some stealing that went on that cost him some money as well. In the movie, um, Bugsy decides he's going to finance the the project by uh, by selling shares to basically anybody and everybody who he can convince to buy shares to the point where he oversells the hotel by a long shot. Did that actually happen? Yeah, I think that is true. I think that if if uh, uh, this had played out and Bugsy had continued to um, uh, to live uh, for several more years, this he could have run into some legal trouble with this. He he created a company called Nevada Projects Corporation and he sold shares, and um, it was not a great accounting of what was going on there. And I think he did oversell the shares, uh, but basically, as you alluded to, he. He needed more money every couple of months. He was running short, and so he would have to fly back to New York, talk to, you know, Frank Costello and other kinds of mob friends of his, and say, "I need more money. I need more money. This is going to be great. You guys are all going to get rich in the end, uh, but I need more money." And and they would, you know, probably very reluctantly give him more money, and uh, and so in the end, he. He gathered $6 million, some of it his own money, no doubt, but he gathered $6 million to build this thing uh, and um, kind of an achievement, if you think about it, uh, to, to be able to put together that kind of money at that time. So fast forward now to the next series of events in the in the movie and the way it's portrayed in the movie, it's it's almost kind of like they they realized, oh, crap, we're 90 minutes into this movie and we have to wrap it all up in the next half hour and we're going to cram as much history as we can into the next 30 minutes. Bugsy opens the Flamingo. He does so on Christmas Day. It is a complete and total failure. The weather is lousy. The power goes out. None of the celebrities who are supposed to show up show up. He announces that night that he's going to be shutting down the Flamingo in the next couple of days and reopening at a later date. He gets called to fly back to Los Angeles. He goes back to Los Angeles that night where he is uh, murdered whilst watching one of his own screen tests and reading the paper. There is a lot to unpack in this whole series of events. So uh, let's let's begin with the opening of the flamingo was it a flop how how did it go down in real life so that yeah so no it was not a flop and this is one of the one of the bigger problems with the movie because a lot so many people have taken that the movie as gospel on this in fact the way it was set up first of all the first op- the first grand opening was the the, the night after Christmas. Uh, so December 26th. But what they did very, I think very cleverly is they had three grand openings, three nights, a three night grand opening. 
and the 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 first night was for locals uh and it was definitely geared toward locals and then there were two other nights and then one of them was really trying to bring the celebrities in there were celebrities all three nights and um you know virginia hill was a great hostess and she had a different colored hair uh each night uh very flamboyant that way lots of people came lots of celebrities came it was it was it was successful in that sense but it could have been even bigger if it weren't for two problems one is the weather in california not the weather in las vegas the weather in southern california which did prevent some flights from coming in uh, uh chartered flights and the second thing was william randolph hearst who was super influential in 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 hollywood uh, he just he really discouraged people from coming to the flamingo because of the mob affiliation and there were so there were people who might have otherwise come except that william randolph hearst uh advised them against it so it, there were definitely celebrities there there definitely were, were movie stars and singers and so forth but not on the level that that siegel would have liked um where things start going bad is after the grand openings because at that point it becomes clear that uh first of all we need to know that the hotel rooms were not finished at the Flamingo yet. And uh, so anybody who went to those grand opening celebrations had a good time. They gambled, they drank and what so forth. Um, when the night was over, they went down to the last frontier uh, or the El Rancho Vegas, or maybe a little further down the road to the El Cortez to, to sleep. And when they wake up in the morning, where are they going to go? They'll probably go have their breakfast at one of those hotels. And why not stay there and gamble? You know, so the Flamingo didn't have the hotel rooms to build the customer base on site that they needed. So the first problem was that. The second problem in the ensuing weeks, and by the way, he didn't close it the next day. Uh, it was open for uh, more than a month before he did shutter it for a month to finish the hotel rooms. But over the course of the month, two things were happening. He didn't have the hotel rooms, and they also, the casino had a run of bad luck at the tables. Now, that you always hear the phrase, the house always wins, and it's true that the house always wins in the end. But the, any casino manager today will tell you that they still have bad runs, like they could have a bad weekend where people won a lot of money. Um, our sports books will see this all the time, like, oh, Super Bowl was a disaster because of where the where the line ended up and where the score was. Um, so they were having a run of bad luck at the tables. Now, there's two things that happened. Either it was pure luck that the guy that people were winning, or it's also possible that there was cheating going on and that some of the uh, dealers were not on the up and up. Very possible. Um Nobody's ever proven it one way or the other. But in any case, the Flamingo books were not looking good after a month of opening. And it became clear that the Flamingo was not doing well without these hotel rooms. So uh, Siegel uh, shuts it down. on the, and He's going to shut down for a period of time while they finish the hotel rooms. And then they'll reopen. And that's exactly what they did. And they reopened like a month later with the hotel rooms and the Flamingo starts doing much better. By the time the Flamingo in real life reopened, 
and as you say, was kind of on the upswing. Um, it was pretty much already too late for Bugsy. That that's always kind of been my understanding is that by then the decision was made. You know, Bugsy's got to go. Um, in the film, they they really just motor this along, and that I mean, he is in the movie. He is murdered. Uh, the night that he returns back to Los Angeles after the, the failed opening of the property in real life, what was the, the timeline like for, for the murder of Bugsy Siegel? So yes, the, 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 the Flamingo opened on December 26, 1946. The murder occurred on June 20th, 1947. So I guess about six months uh, later, uh, even though the Flamingo was doing better after it reopened with the hotel rooms, uh, and, and Siegel was growing increasingly confident that he was going to pull this off and that all of the investments would be repaid and all of, all of his promises would be fulfilled. Um, there are a couple, you know, obviously we haven't solved the Bugsy Siegel murder. There are a couple different ways this could have gone. We don't know for sure. Um, who killed him? But I think the prevailing view is that the mob itself had grown weary of Siegel and his involvement with the Flamingo. They were happy with the Flamingo and how things were going by June of 1947 because the numbers were starting to look good. But it, I have the sense, and certainly from my reading, uh, I have the sense that they did not have confidence that Bugsy Siegel was going to be the guy who was going to make the Flamingo a long-term success and that there were other people who could run this thing better for the mob than Siegel could. There are also were allegations, never proven, that, uh, that uh, Siegel was skimming himself from the Flamingo. In other words, it was going to take a lot longer for these investors to get their money because Siegel was taking a bigger cut than he, than he should have. Um, I don't think that's ever been proven either. But in the end, I think it's pretty clear that um, the, the the powers that be uh, within the mafia in America and the mob in America uh, felt that uh, Siegel was more of a liability to them at that point than he was an asset. I was always under the impression that one of the prevailing theories surrounding um, the murder of Bugsy was that he was killed because he had been skimming money. It is. And uh, I am not a, a big adherent to that one simply because I'm not, um, I'm not sure we can ever prove it. And, uh, and I don't know exactly why he would do that. In other words, what would be the reason for that? Uh, you know, he wasn't a guy who was thinking about his death. He wasn't thinking about like, what am I going to do in my retirement? You know, where's my social security? He, he was not thinking about things like, Oh, I need to put some money away in a Swiss bank account for later. Uh, I don't think that's the way he thought. And so he just wanted the Flamingo to be successful and that he get the credit for it and that he can be, he could show that he was a mainstream businessman like all the other successful businessmen out there and that he didn't need to, uh, to, to kill people to, uh, to make a living. And so I, I'm not a big adherent to the, to the idea that Siegel was skimming. It's funny that you bring up the Swiss bank account thing, because that ends up being a, a big part of the, the finale of this film in that the mob 
goes to Bugsy saying they believe that she's been stealing money and that she's got it socked away in this Swiss bank account that they know about. And Bugsy says, oh, well, a lot of people have got Swiss bank accounts and, and money hidden in other countries. It's no big deal. Um, and then she basically admits to it before he goes back to Los Angeles to be murdered. She comes right out and tells him, yeah, I, I stole this money and I put it in a Swiss bank account. Was there ever any proof to show that she actually did skim money? There were rumors uh, because what happened is about two weeks before Siegel's murder in June of 1947, uh, uh, she left. She left not only uh, Las Vegas, but she left the country and um, went to Paris. And, And why did she go to Paris at that particular time? Well, you know, you could say, well, she was she was uh, taking money to her Swiss bank account. But I think what she was really doing was somebody had talked to her and said, you know what? Uh, I think we're going to I think uh, uh, Ben Siegel is going to have uh, a bad day uh, coming up. And it might be smart for you to be as far away from that as possible. And I don't know if that happened. Uh, I am speculating on that. It could be that she was just ticked off with Siegel, which happened all the time. It's very well depicted in the movie. Uh, and they did have, uh, you know, uh, she was a victim of domestic violence because Siegel uh, did uh, physically assault her. Uh, I, I'm i not defending it, but uh, uh, I, she pro- also physically assaulted him. So there's a little bit on both sides of that. But uh, uh, nonetheless, you know, she may have just been getting away from him. So that's one scenario. Another is which I tend to believe is she got tipped off by Meyer Lansky or somebody who said, you know what, why don't you just go to Paris for a couple of weeks and let's see what happens. And, and so I don't know that she took money with her or anything like that. I think she just was getting away from the scene. Billy Wilkerson ran away to Paris at one point too. Did he not? (laughs) He did. And that was under threat of his life. Uh, uh, Siegel uh, became very impatient with, with, uh, Wilkerson and, 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 and Wilkerson was always, if you read the biographies of Wilkerson, he was always looking for excuses to go to Paris because he really liked Paris. Uh, but besides that, uh, it's pretty well established that he was, uh, feared for his own life, uh, from Siegel. Uh, and so he did take off for Paris at one point. I remember one of the stories I had read about Wilkerson was after Bugsy's murder and he had been, um, sitting in a a cafe or a patio at a cafe in Paris. And he picked up the newspaper and he saw the headline that Bugsy had been murdered. And the first thing he did after he read that headline was book himself a trip back to the U S. Yeah. I think that there's probably a degree of truth to that. One of the things that about Wilkerson was uh, Siegel. We, and we have this, uh, this document in our museum. It, it Siegel bought him out. He had to buy him out. He couldn't just threaten him and tell him to go away legally. That wasn't going to fly. So Siegel worked they have a, they had an agreement that Siegel would pay uh, uh, Wilkerson $600,000 to buy him out of the Flamingo. This is after it was open. And um, Wilkerson agreed to that. And, Siegel paid him the first half of that money, the 300000 with the intention of paying him the, the remainder at a later date. Well, uh, according to Billy Wilkerson's son, uh, uh, Billy never got that money because Siegel was killed. And so Wilkerson only ever, ever got 300000 from 
uh, from the Flamingo. He should have gotten 600. And I'm thinking he wasn't quite willing to walk over to the mob and say, hey, guys, still owe me 300K. Uh, any chance of getting that? <laughs> right. I, I I don't know the details, but I uh, suspect they would not have been forthcoming. <laughs> so in conclusion, then, Jeff, uh, on a scale of one to five, let's say, with one being complete and total BS and five being absolutely 100% historically accurate, where would you put Bugsy? Well, I'd probably put it in a, in a two range uh, because it is very fanciful and it's uh, it doesn't try very hard to uh, stick to the facts. Uh, I do think there's some merit to the movie. I think I'm kind of a Warren Beatty fan. I kind of like him as an actor and, and I like the way his movies look uh, typically. Uh, I think there's some really some decent scenes in the movie, but as far as historical accuracy, uh, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that too seems about accurate in my mind. Um, something I, I, I do want to mention though. And, and I, I only recently watched the movie again, just prior to, to our conversation here and something that you really can't, you can't take away from the fact that the movie is, a really well shot movie and it's, it's beautifully filmed and it's brilliantly edited. And the color of the movie is, is very vibrant and very bright. And it does a really good job of, of capturing that era, particularly that era in Los Angeles and just the way everything looks and how, how well it's presented. I think that's, that's accurate. And I think, um, uh, I think Beatty, Beatty's portrayal of Siegel, and again, I, I I didn't meet Siegel. I don't really know exactly what his mannerisms were or anything like that. But I feel like like Beatty tried pretty hard to portray the type of person that Bugsy Siegel was. He was kind of this dreamer on the one hand, uh, uh, who on the other hand, you know, no nonsense businessman. I'm gonna kill you if you don't pay me uh, that kind of thing and I think and then this but but a dreamer in the sense that he all through the movie people are telling him bad things about Virginia Hill calling her every name in the book right to his face and yet he has so smitten with her that he overlooks all of this as if he can as she's a princess that somehow he's going to be able to uh, convert into what he wants her to be but it it, it's impossible. It's so it's Gatsby like, right? In that sense, um, and 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 so I, there there is some. I think there are some worthwhile takeaways from the movie. But in, in the end, um, from a, a, stand, a standpoint of mob history, uh, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. Excellent, Jeff Schumacher, Vice President of Exhibits and Programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Always a blast chatting with you and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to jump on and have this particular conversation. I, I love being on here. Thanks a lot. If you want to learn more about Benjamin Bugsy Siegel and his associates and their involvement in the history of Las Vegas, I'd highly recommend a trip to the Mob Museum on your next Vegas vacation. You can visit themobmuseum.org for tickets and more info. Also, follow The Mob Museum on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Mob Museum. And be sure to check out Jeff Schumacher's past appearances on the podcast. You can find all these links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. 
that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcast so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Oh,